2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This is the Men of God Network, a podcast of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. For more narrations, go to puritanaudiobooks.com. I wanted to make a quick explanatory note. If you were trying to follow along in John Owen's commentary on Hebrews and his exposition of Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27, and find that I am taking a lot of liberty, I have always done so, trying to put it in a more modern English on the fly as I am narrating it. I take the liberty to substitute more modern English words that are more helpful We don't use words like combinations so much anymore, animadversions, aversations. And so I hope that this is helpful for a modern audience that finds John Owen difficult. I've been narrating John Owen's work since the middle to late 1980s, and it allows me to be able to do this as I'm quite familiar with how he wrote. The following reading is from John Owen's commentary on Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fire indignation. We shall devour the adversaries. John Owen writes, in these verses, the apostle gives a vehement enforcement of his preceding exhortation from the dreadful consequences of a total neglect of it that is, the forsaking of the assembly, verse 25. And he does this by expressing the nature of the sin which lies in it, by an impossibility of deliverance from the guilt of it, the punishment that would unavoidably follow upon it. Interpreters have greatly perplexed themselves and others in the interpretation and exposition of these verses and those that follow. Their conjectures in great variety have proceeded principally from a lack of a due attendance to the scope of the apostle. The argument he had in hand, the circumstances of the people to whom he wrote, and the present state of God's providence towards them. We will not trouble the reader with their various conjectures and censors of them, but I shall give an evident sense of the words as themselves and the context to show what was the mind of the Holy Ghost in these verses. As to the words in which the sin and state of such men is expressed, if we sin willfully, he puts himself among them, as if his manner and combinations both to show that there is no respect to persons in this matter, but those who have equally sinned shall be equally punished, and to take off all appearances of severity towards them, seeing he speaks nothing of this nature but on such suppositions as in which he is himself concerned. He pronounces it against himself also, we sinning, or if we sin, willfully. Our former translations willingly, which we have now avoided, lest we should give countenance to a supposition that there is no recovery after any voluntary sin. If we sin willfully, that is obstinately, maliciously, and with despite, 
which is the nature of the sin itself, as is declared in verse 29. But the word does not require, nor will scarce bear any such sense. Willingly is of choice, not being surprised by a sin, not being compulsed by fear. And this is all that the word will bear. The season of circumstances which state the sin intended is after we have received the knowledge of the truth. There is no question but that by the truth the apostle intends the doctrine of the gospel and the receiving of it is upon the conviction of its being the truth to take on us the outward profession of it. Only there is an emphasis in that word. It is not used anywhere to express the mere conceptions or notions of the mind about truth, but such an acknowledgement of it as arises from sense of its power and excellency. This, therefore, is a description of the persons concerning whom this sin is supposed. They were such as to whom the gospel had been preached, who upon conviction of its truth and sense of its power had taken upon them the public profession of it. And this is all that is required to the constitution of the state. And what is so required may be reduced to one of these two heads. One, the solemn dedication of themselves to Christ in and by their baptism. Number two, their solemn joining themselves to the church and continuance in the duties of its worship. Acts 2, verses 41 and 42. On this opening of the words, it is evident what sin it is that is intended, against which this heavy doom is denounced, and that on these two considerations, one, that the head of the precedent exhortation is that we should hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, Hebrews 10, verse 23, and a means of continuing in that profession, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Therefore, the sin against this exhortation is the relinquishment and renouncing of the profession of the faith with all the acts and duties that belong to it. Number two, the state opposite to the sin, that which is contrary to it is receiving the knowledge of the truth, which what is required to this we have now declared. Therefore, the sin here intended is plainly a relinquishment and renunciation of the truth of the gospel and the promises of it, with all the duties that belong to it, after we have been convinced of its truth and avowed its power and excellency. There is no more required but that this doctrine be done willingly, is one, not upon a sudden surprise and temptation, is Peter denying Christ. Number two, not on those compulsions and fears which may work a present dissimulation without an internal rejection of the gospel. Number three, not through darkness, ignorance, making an impression for a season on the minds and reasonings of men, which things, though exceedingly evil and dangerous, may befall them who yet contract not the guilt of this crime. But what is required to this, that men who thus do this sin do it by choice, and of their own accord, from the internal depravity of their own minds, and an evil heart of unbelief to depart from the living God. Number two, that they do it by and with the preference of another way of religion, and arresting in it before or above the gospel. Number three, that whereas there were two things which were the foundation of the profession of the gospel, 
First, the blood of the covenant or the blood of the sacrifice of Christ with the atonement made by it. And secondly, the dispensation of the spirit of grace. These they did openly renounce and declared that there was nothing of God in them, as we shall see on verse 29. Such were they who fell off from the gospel unto Judaism in those days. Such are they whom the apostle here describes is as evident in the context. I will say no more to the sin at present, because I must read of it under its aggravations on verse 29. Observation 1. If a voluntary relinquishment of the profession of the gospel and the duties of it be the highest sin, and be attended with the height of wrath and punishment, we ought earnestly to watch against everything that inclines or disposes us to it. Observation 2. Every declension in or from the profession of the gospel has a proportion of the guilt of this great sin, according to the proportion that it bears to the sin itself. In this there may be various degrees. Observation 3. There are sins and times in which God does absolutely refuse to hear any more from men in order to their salvation. The first thing which the apostle charges as an aggravation of the sin is that it cannot be expiated. There remains no more sacrifice for sins. Words not unlike those of God concerning the house of Eli, 1 Samuel 3, verse 14. I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. An allusion is made here unto the sacrifices of the law, as there were certain sins which from their nature, as murder, adultery, blasphemy, or from the manner of their committing it with obstinacy in a high hand, had no sacrifice allowed for them, but those that were so guilty were to be cut off from the people of God and to die without mercy, as the apostle declares in his own mind, verse 28, so it is with them that thus sin willingly. There is no relief appointed for them, no means for the expiation of their sin. But yet there is a special reason of this severity under the gospel, which the apostle has principal respect to. And this is that there is now no multiplication or repetition of sacrifices for sin. That of Christ, our high priest, was offered once for all. Henceforth, he dies no more. He is offered no more, nor can there be any other sacrifice offered forever. This the words express, there remains not, there is not in the counsel, purpose, or institution of God any other sacrifice yet left to be offered in this or any other case. To suppose there is yet any such left, it must be on one of these two accounts. First, that God would change the whole dispensation of himself and his grace by Christ because of its weakness and insufficiency. But it may be said, whereas God did thus deal with the Mosaical law and all its sacrifices to bring in that of Christ, why may not therefore there be another way of expiation of sin yet remaining in which they may be purged and purified, who are guilty of apostasy from the gospel? Secondly, although men have justly forfeited all their interest and benefit by the one offering of Christ, 
Why may he not appoint another for them or cause himself to be offered again for their recovery? But both these suppositions are not only false, but highly blasphemous, for it is certain there remains no more sacrifice for sins. The original words comprise all sorts of offerings and sacrifices in which sin might be expiated. Therefore, the apostle plainly expresses that his persons, by a voluntary relinquishment of the gospel, forfeit all their interests in the sacrifice of Christ, as he further declares, verse 29, so there was no way appointed for the relief of them by the expiation of their sin forever. Further, to clear the mind of the Holy Ghost in this, I should answer some inquiries that may arise on this interpretation of the words, but in this place I shall only propose them. 1. Whether this committing of the sin may be extended to all ages, times, and seasons, or whether it was confined only to the present state of the Hebrews, with the circumstances they were in. The reasons of the inquiry are because their circumstances were eminently peculiar, and such as cannot befall others in any season, but secondly, because there was a temporal destruction then impending over them, ready to devour apostates, which cannot be applied to them who fall into the same sin at other times. Number two, whether the sin intended may include great actual sins after the profession of the gospel, answering such as under the law were said to be committed with an high hand. Three, whether there may be hopes for the persons here intended, though not express provision be made in the covenant for the expiation of this sin. Four, whether there be any defect in the priesthood of Christ, that it has but one sacrifice for sins, which if it be neglected and despised can never be repeated, nor can any other sacrifice be added to it. Number five, if a person who has voluntarily forsaken and renounced the gospel, with the great appearance of all the circumstances that concur to the state of sin here mentioned, should make profession of repentance, what may be conceived concerning his eternal condition? What is the duty of the church concerning such an one? These things shall be spoke of elsewhere. Observation 4. The loss of an interest in the sacrifice of Christ, and what account or by what means soever it fall out, will absolutely ruin the souls of men. Hebrews 10.27. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. When a man under the law had contracted the guilt of any such sin as was indispensably capital in its punishment for the legal expiation, whereof no sacrifice was appointed or allowed, such as murder, adultery, blasphemy, he had nothing remaining but a fearful expectation of the execution of the sentence of the law against him. And it is evident that in this context the apostle argues from the less to the greater if it was so that this is the case of him who so sinned against Moses' law, how much more must it be so with them that sin against the gospel, whose sin is incomparably greater and the punishment more severe? There are two things contained in these words. One, the punishment due to the sins of apostates, which is expressed in three ways. By the general nature of it, it is judgment. By the special nature of that judgment, it is fiery indignation. By the efficacy of it to its end, it devours the adversaries. 
Next, a certain approach of this judgment, there remains a fearful expectation. This last lies first in the words, and. The word does not denote an assured expectation or the certainty of the punishment, but only a certain kind of expectation, a kind of fearful expectation. Nor is it spoken in the way of diminution, but to intimate something that is inexpressible, such as no heart can conceive or tongue express. 1 Peter 4, verses 17 and 18. What shall be the end of them who obey not the gospel? Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? The word expectation is the frame of mind with respect to anything that is future, good or bad, in which we are concerned, that we are to look for it, whatever it be, which we have reason and grounds to think will come to us or befall us. This expectation is said to be fearful, tremendous, which men can neither conflict with nor avoid, as we shall see further in Hebrews 10, verse 31. That which fills the mind with dread and horror, depriving it of all comfort and relief. An expectation of this dreadful and terrible nature may be taken in two ways. One, for the certain relation that is between the sin and punishment spoken of. The punishment is unavoidable as anything is which upon the most certain grounds is looked for. So they are said only to metaphorically to look for that which will certainly ensue. Two is it expresses the frame of the minds of them concerning it. And though the assertion may be used in the former sense, yet I doubt not that this latter also is included in it. And that also on two accounts. First, because if they did set themselves to the consideration of the event of their apostasy, nothing else could befall their minds. Nothing could present itself to them for their relief. Their minds will not admit of any other thoughts but what belong to this dreadful expectation. Secondly, on the account of that dread and terror that God sends at times into the minds and consciences of such persons, they may bear it high and with an ostentation of satisfaction in what they have done. Yet commonly they proclaim a self-justification and prove desperate persecutors of them who sacredly adhere to the truth. But as he said of old of tyrants, that if their breasts were opened, it would appear what tortures they have within, I am persuaded it is probable that God very seldom lets them pass in this world without tormenting fear and dread of approaching judgments, which is a broad entrance into hell. Observation 5. There is an inseparable connection between apostasy and eternal ruin. 6. God oftentimes visits the minds of cursed apostates with dreadful expectations of approaching wrath. Number 7. When men have hardened themselves in sin, no fear of punishment will either rouse or stir them up to seek after relief. Observation 8, a dreadful expectation of future wrath without hope of relief is an open entrance into hell itself. This dreadful punishment is described by the general nature of it. It is not a thing that is dubious, that may fall out, but it is certain judgment. It is not an unaccountable severity that they are threatened with, but it is a just and righteous sentence denouncing punishment proportionate to their sin and crime. Judgment is taken sometimes for punishment itself, Psalm 916, 
James 2, verse 13, 1 Peter 4, verse 17, 2 Peter 2, verse 3. But most commonly, it is used for the sentence of judicial condemnation and trial, determining the offender to punishment. And so it is most commonly used to express a general judgment that shall pass on all mankind at the last day. Matthew 10, verse 15, Matthew 11, verse 22, Matthew 11, verse 24, and 12, 36. I doubt not but that in the word is here used, both these are included, namely the righteous sentence of God judging and determining on the guilt of this sin, and the punishment itself which issues because of it, as it is immediately described. And although respect be in this principally to the judgment of the great day, yet is it not exclusive of any previous judgments that are preparatory to it and pledges of it? Such was that dreadful judgment which was then coming on the apostate church of the Hebrews. Observation 9. The expectation of future judgment in guilty persons is, or will be at one time or another, dreadful and tremendous. The punishment and destruction of those sinners is described by its particular nature. It is a fiery indignation. What is this fire and what is this indignation of it? God himself is in the scripture said to be a consuming fire in Deuteronomy 4 verse 24, Deuteronomy 9 verse 3, Isaiah 33 verse 14, Hebrews 12 verse 29. What is intended by it is declared in a word in Deuteronomy 4, verse 24. The essential holiness and righteousness of God, in which he cannot bear with the iniquities and provocations of men, who betake not themselves to the only atonement, and that he will by no means acquit the guilty. These are intended in this metaphorical expression. The judgment of God concerning the punishment of sin as an effect of his will in a way consonant to the holiness of his nature and the exigence of his righteousness is called fire. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 13. But that is not the fire that is here intended. It is devouring, consuming, destroying. Such as answers the severity of God's justice to the utmost, Isaiah 9 verse 5. Isaiah 30, verse 33, Isaiah 66, verse 15, Amos 7, 4. Therefore, this indignation or fervor of fire has respect to three things. One, the holiness of the nature of God, from whence originally this judgment proceeds, is that which is most suitable to it. Number two, the righteous act of the will of God, sometimes called his wrath and anger, from the effects of it being suitable to the holiness of its nature. Number three, the dreadful severity of the judgment in itself and its nature and effects, as it is declared in the next words. I don't doubt but respect is had to the final judgment at the last day and the eternal destruction of apostates, but yet also it evidently includes that sore and fiery judgment which God was bringing on the obstinate apostate Jews in the total destruction of them in their church state by fire and sword. For such judgments are compared to and called fire in the scripture, so this was so singular, so unparalleled in any people of the world, is that it might be well called fiery indignation or fervor of fire.
Besides, it was an imminent pledge and token of the future judgment and the severity of God in it. Therefore, it is foretold in expressions that are applicable to the last judgment. See Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31, and 2 Peter 3, verses 10 to 12. Number three, this indignation to be executed by fire is described in the last place by its efficacy and effects. It is a fire that shall devour or eat up the adversaries. The expression is taken from Isaiah 26, verse 11. For the fire of your enemies is there, not that which the enemies burn with, but in which they shall be burned. Concerning the efficacy and effect of this fire, we may consider, one, the season of its application to this effect, two, the object of it, the adversaries, three, the way of its operation, it shall devour them. First, it shall do so. It has not yet come to the effect, it is future. Hence, many of them despised it as that which would never be, Second Peter 3, verses 3 to 6. But there are three things intimated in this word. First, that it is in readiness, not yet come, but ready to come. So is the word used to express that which is future, but ready to make its entrance. Secondly, that it is certain, it shall and will be, whatever appearances there are of its turning aside, and men's trying to avoid it, it will come in its proper season. So the prophet speaks in a like manner in Habakkuk 2 verse 3. Thirdly, the foundation of the certainty of the coming of this fiery indignation is an irreversible decree of God, accompanied with righteousness and the measures which infinite wisdom gave to his patience. This is the unavoidable season that was approaching, when the adversaries had filled up the measure of their sin and God's providence had saved the elect from this wrath to come. Observation 10. There is a determined time for the accomplishment of all divine threatenings and the infliction of the severest judgments which no man can abide or avoid. He has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. So at present there is the sort of man whose damnation slumbers not concerning whom he has sworn that time shall be no more, which is the present state of the anti-Christian world. Observation 11, the certain determination of divine vengeance on the enemies of the gospel is the motive to holiness and the support under sufferings of them that believe. Lift up your heads, for your redemption draws nigh. 20 is 1, verses 7 to 10. There is a description of those on whom this fiery indignation shall have its effect, and it is the adversaries. He does not say those that don't believe and don't obey the gospel, as he does elsewhere when he treats absolutely of the day of judgment, as in Second Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9, now mentioned, but it confines him to those that are adversaries who, from a contrary principle, set themselves against the Lord Christ and the gospel. This is a peculiar description of the unbelieving Jews at that time. They did not only refuse the gospel through unbelief, but were acted by a principle of opposition thereunto, not only as to themselves, but as to others, even the whole world. So is their state described in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 15 and 16, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us 
and they don't please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway. For the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. They laid the foundation of this enmity in killing the Lord Jesus. But they didn't rest in that. They continued in their unbelief, adhering to their old Judaism and their sins in it. Nor did they rest there, but persecuted the apostles, drove them out from amongst them, and all that preached the gospel, and this not only with respect to themselves alone and those of their own nation, but they set themselves with fury all the world over against the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, and that of cursed malice, that they might not be saved. See examples of this rage in Acts 13, 45, Acts 22, verses 22 and 23. They were properly the adversaries whom the apostle intends, and therefore the judgment which was peculiar to them in their sins, and that fearful temporal destruction which then approached, is intended in this, as well as the equity of the sentence is extended to the general destruction of all unbelievers at the last day. Observation 12. The highest aggravation for the greatest sin is when men, out of a contrary principle of superstition and error, set themselves maliciously to oppose the doctrine and truth of the gospel with respect to themselves and others. Observation 13. There is a time in which God will make such demonstrations of his wrath and displeasure against all adversaries of the gospel. It shall be pledges of his eternal indignation. He will one day deal so with the anti-Christian persecuting world. What is the effect of this fiery indignation against those adversaries? It shall eat them up, devour them. The expression is metaphorical, taken from the nature and efficacious operation of fire. It eats, devours, swallows up, and consumes. All combustible manner that is supplied to or is put into it, that is intended, is destruction, inevitable, unavoidable, and terrible in the manner of it. See Malachi 4.1, from where these expressions are taken. Only the similitude is not to be extended beyond the proper intention of it. For fire does so consume and devour what is put into it, is that it destroys the substance and being of it, that it shall be no more. But it is not so with the fiery indignation that shall consume or devour the adversaries at the last day. It shall devour them as to all happiness, all blessedness, all hopes, comforts, and relief at once. But it shall not at once utterly consume their being. This is that which this fire shall eternally prey upon and never utterly consume. But if we make the application of it to the temporal destruction that came upon them, the similitude holds throughout, for it utterly consumed them and devoured them, and all that belonged to them in this world, they were devoured by it. Observation 14, the dread and terror of God's final judgments against the enemies of the gospel is in itself inconceivable and only shadowed out by things of the greatest dread and terror in the world. <laughs>